Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It remains July the 7th, 2022. It's been quite a week, the week, of course, of July 4th and the terrible events in Highland Park uh, outside Chicago. It's, it's hard not to be a pessimist. It's hard not to be affected by these terrible images. And the familiarity of the morning is also not just depressing, but also, I think, for many of us, quite angering. Um, I've been accused of being a pessimist, which I probably am. We did a July 4 show with Jonathan Rausch, my old friend from D.C., from the Brookings Institute. He fears a post-democratic America. I think he's a little bit of a pessimist. Ian Barumer as well, the former editor of the New York Review of Books, as an outsider, a Dutch writer with an expertise in East Asia, is also fearful, although perhaps slightly less pessimistic than I am. But everyone seems pessimistic about America, both on the left and on the right. Uh, the National Review, which is the voice piece of some sort of coherent American conservatism, um, has a statement about America's crisis of doubt. So what to make of all this pessimism? I was struck with a really interesting piece by uh, Daniel Dresner, a longtime columnist for the Washington Post and a distinguished professor of political science at the Tuff, at Tufts University in Massachusetts. He had an interesting piece about America's pessimism surplus and Daniel is joining us today. Uh, Daniel, have you brought your pessimism with you? Well, I don't know if I'm pessimistic. I'm just worried that everyone else is far too pessimistic, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, but it, it's hard not to be. Pessimism, unfortunately, uh, in some ways is like a virus. It's unfortunately contagious. If you surround yourself with pessimistic people, you're not going to be, it's tough to be an optimist. I mean, you, you write in the piece about the left. It's not just conservatives. The left is despairing. James Clyburn mm -hmm. uh, said, look where we are in the country. It seems as if it's coming from all sides. Um, uh, Matthew Inglesias, a popular uh, commentator and Twitter activist, uh, reminded everyone on Twitter that America still is in such a bad place, got massively attacked. Crisis of the elites. Is that how, uh, Daniel, we need to be thinking about this thing? Crisis of American elites, which is part of the general crisis of America? I would say it's more a crisis of faith in American elites um, and American institutions. So one of the issues that that is going on is that obviously it, it's easy to point to a variety of scandals and or uh, mistakes and fiascos that, that American elites have been responsible for, particularly in this century, going back to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, to the 2008 financial crisis, um, to uh, the sort of blowback against uh, elites that led to Donald Trump's election in 2016, to the various fumblings and stumblings during the pandemic, to the uh, haphazard U.S. retreat from Afghanistan. Um, and now uh, trying to respond to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, so it's not like elites have done terribly well during this period. Uh, indeed, at least on in the areas where I'm familiar with in terms of foreign policy, this got summed up in terms of uh, Ben Rhodes ascribing uh, the term the blob to describe 
uh, foreign policy elites and and the ways in which they don't necessarily know what they're doing or are victims of groupthink. But a related problem is not just the mistakes, it's that as a result, the American public really doesn't trust elites anymore and they don't trust institutions. Indeed, Gallup just came out with uh, their latest uh, poll, they do this annually, asking Americans about trust institutions and trust in almost every major institution um, has dropped across the board. Most prominently, the Supreme Court, uh, which is unsurprising given the recent uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, but even uh, trust in the U.S. military is also on the decline. Um, and in some ways, that's the the most interesting thing, because the military for the longest time um, had been the institution that had defied the odds on this. But the fact that you're even seeing trust in them starting to decline, it, it's tricky because trust in some ways is a social lubricant um, and trust in political institutions and economic institutions um, is a way of reducing friction in terms of getting things done. And because we're now operating in a world in which trust in these institutions is no longer seems to work, um, it's recursive. It feeds back on itself. Um, we don't trust institutions to get things done. That makes it harder for institutions to get things done. That makes us trust institutions even less. You have an interesting book, uh, The Ideas Industry, How Pessimists, Partisans, and Plutocrats Are Transforming the Marketplace of Ideas, got quite a lot of attention a few years ago. To what extent are the chickens coming home to you to roost in terms of American academics, TED speakers, this whole infrastructure of the ideas industry, which, as you suggest in the book, is, is problematic at best and might even be bogus? Well, I, I'm going to amend that. I mean, I, I don't what I was arguing in the book was not necessarily that uh, that America's marketplace for ideas has gotten worse. Um, it was more that it had gotten bad in a different way. Uh, so, you know, back 30, 40 years ago, um, there was a different America uh, marketplace of ideas, one that had really powerful uh, editorial gatekeepers. Um one that was, but one that was also relatively homogenous. Um, it had high barriers to entry, but also uh, was able to usually drum out um, bad ideas relatively quickly. Uh, and then the book talks about sort of three trends that have, have dramatically altered the marketplace of ideas. One being, as I said before, the erosion of trust in, in authority and expertise, uh, which has only gotten worse. Uh, the second uh, and, and pretty pronounced is the rise of political polarization, which is to say that, um, Democrats have moved further to the left. Republicans have moved way further to the right. As a result, they tend to view each other as, in some ways, the most important political adversary as opposed to any actor in the rest of the world. And they tend to distrust um, anyone who is not from their own uh, ideological uh, ilk uh, in terms of offering advice. And this this badly uh, erodes the ability of sort of nonpartisan experts um, to try to persuade partisans of one side or the other. Any issue that gets politically polarized, like, let's say, climate change, it doesn't matter whether you present something saying, hey, all of these scientists say that this is a real problem. They're just going to assume that that's some sort of uh, ideological talking point. Um, and then the last uh, uh, trend, uh, which is also disturbing, is sort of the rise of, of plutocrats, the growth of, of wealth inequality, um, is in and of itself a problem, but it also has created this sort of new category of extremely super empowered individuals. Uh, and it turns out that 
these super empowered individuals want to do a lot of things. Maybe they, some of them want to go to Mars. Um, some of them want to, you know, uh, develop their own redoubts in case civilization blows itself up. But a lot of them also actually just want to go back to college. They want to be taken seriously as thinkers. Um, and so as a result, they wind up creating their own intellectual salons. Um, and, and they buy newspapers as well. And we- right, exactly. Um, or try to buy Twitter uh, or, or what have you. And one of the issues here is that, you know, it, one of the, the longstanding ideas of public intellectuals or the purposes of public intellectuals is to speak truth to power. Um, that's not always easy to do. But if you think speaking truth to power is hard, try speaking truth to money. Um, that's almost impossible. And so all of these things combined have created a new kind of marketplace of ideas where on the one hand, the barriers to entry are much lower. You don't need to publish in the New York Times or in foreign affairs to, to potentially be listened to. Um, and so that's the good news, that, that uh, the power of gatekeepers has declined considerably. Um, the bad news is that the barriers to exit have actually gone up. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, traditionally, it, it, for a functioning marketplace of ideas, bad ideas should get drummed out of existence. Um, bad ideas should be eliminated from the discourse entirely. And what we actually are now experiencing is a situation in which bad ideas don't die um, because if they are attacked, um, you know, if someone comes out and says, hey, you know what, I think two plus two equals five and all the mathematicians in the world say, no, that's wrong. The guy who says the two plus two equals five says can say, look at all of these so-called experts, you know, arguing that I must be wrong. What are they trying to hide? Why are they trying to drum me out? Um, and unfortunately, that is a rhetorical uh, approach that that has more resonance now than it should. Um, and so as a result, a lot of really stupid ideas wind up getting put forward, and it is almost impossible to get rid of them. Dan, you stand or sit on both sides of the, the fence. You're very prominent on Twitter. I think you've tweeted 260,000 tweets, which is quite an oh, achievement. Oh, God. I didn't know that. Wow. That's, that's, that is yeah, a lot. Yeah. I hope you're working not, Achievement that. is not quite the word I would use for that. But Yeah, okay, well, I'll I use that word carefully. And then, but you're yes. also a professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts, one of the top universities in, uh, not just in, in America, but in the world. Is this problematic that <laughs> ideas men like you can have your cake and eat it? You can be on Twitter, you can work at Tufts, and that you don't have to make your choice? Or is that actually a good thing? Well, I would say a few things on this. First, it's worth remembering that, um, you know, back in the day, not before tweeting, I was blogging a fair amount. um, And that might have played a role in me getting denied tenure when I was at the University of Chicago. So I did make a choice. uh, And there were were costs to it. Now, the good news for me is that Fletcher then came uh, calling and I was hired by them and, and since I've been tenured, yeah, I've been able to do a lot of different things. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing per se for you know this to be uh, to be. How would I put it? I I guess the way I would put it is that you know one if if I have a comparative advantage as an academic, it's that very often if if I have an idea um, or a theory that I want to pursue. I can almost immediately figure out what the proper venue is, whether it's from, let's say, international organization, which is the leading journal in my field, to a tweet. Um, And then there's plenty of uh, things in between. Um, And I think there are different kinds of ideas that should be evaluated 
differently in that sense. And I think one of the mistakes sometimes among academics um, is to assume that all words should be weighed equally when that's not necessarily the case. Um, but that said, I, you know, I also think the world has changed since I was denied tenure. And I mean, I, I agree that, that in some ways now, if you're an academic, very often what, what universities want to know are things about impact, the ways in which your, your ideas that, you know, resonate beyond, um, your scholarly circles and are actually taken up seriously, or at least considered by policymakers. Um, and I guess the way I would put it is, is that there are some scholars I know that should try to aim for impact. And then there are other scholars for whom I don't think going for impact is necessarily the way to go, at least not in their lifetimes. That very often, you know, to paraphrase John Maynard Keynes, you know, future politicians are often when they come up with, think they've come up with some idea, are repeating the nostrums of some long, you know, defunct economist or madman raving in authority or actually quoting some old political philosopher. So, Dan, I thought you were going to cheer me up. You wrote about the pessimism surplus. You began this conversation suggesting that maybe we're excessively pessimistic, but you haven't said anything to make me or any other American more cheerful. Why should we be more cheerful? Is it just sort of, if we're cheerful, then we'll cheer up? Is that basically your argument? That's certainly part of it. Just as excessive pessimism winds up being a vicious circle, certainly optimism can be a virtuous one. Um, but I also think there are valid reasons to cheer up, um, the most obvious of which is, you know, we just survived a pandemic uh, and got a vaccine that allowed us to have some measure of our life back um, in truly a record amount of time. Uh, you know, the, prior to the COVID-19 vaccines being developed, um, the earliest, I think, or the, the, the quickest that a vaccine um, went from trials to market was something like four years. We wound up you know, the, the, the fact that it constantly amazes me is that I think um, uh, Pfizer had the the initial um, vaccine for COVID-19, I think, right around March of 2020. I mean, the re the length, the, the rest of that year, obviously, it had undergo testing, which is entirely appropriate. But the fact that they were able to develop the vaccine just as the, va the, the virus itself was going global strikes me as extraordinary. So I think we tend to sleep on the sort of technological changes that have actually made, um, hopefully will make life, you know, considerably better in the 21st century. Um, I also think the fact that, you know, American society had to adapt to a pandemic and did so in surprisingly interesting ways, you know, the, the ability to do things like work from home. I'm not even sure we could have done as much of what we did during the pandemic five years earlier. Um, I mean, imagine trying to conduct all your meetings via Skype, for example, as opposed to Zoom. Um, that would have been pretty horrific. And I think also the, the biggest tell that in fact Americans should be more optimistic is that if you take a look at the polling data and you ask Americans how they feel about the, re the, the state of the country, they're extremely pessimistic. If you ask them how they're doing personally in terms of their own personal finances, their own you know personal sense of well-being, most Americans are actually doing pretty well. Um, and so as a result, I, th I think the country suffers from what is political scientists often refer to as pluralistic ignorance. And pluralistic ignorance is when you think that you hold a particular opinion and that it must be a minority opinion and that others probably don't agree with you, when in fact it turns out that way more people agree with you than you previously understood. Um, and so I guess what I would say is that, you know, we're emerging from a, a pandemic uh, in a situation in which actually public policy worked pretty well in terms of preventing the worst um, from happening, both medically 
and in terms of the economy. Um, we have pretty low inflation. Uh, even in, uh, I'm sorry, we have pretty low unemployment and even inflation, which has been disturbingly high, seems to be coming down. So I, I guess I'm more optimistic than most in terms of, and, and maybe the way, uh, I would put this is that one of the books I wrote, uh, about the 2008 financial crisis, the response to it was called the system worked. Um, I always like to joke that the Jewish version of that title, I'm Jewish, that, that if I had written that just for a Jewish audience, the title would have been, it could have been so much worse. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about today. I understand, you know, concerns. I understand concerns about the state of our democracy, about the state of the economy. But there is a contrary narrative that suggests that in point of fact, you know, the global economy is trying to repair itself from all of the myriad stresses that the pandemic uh, put on it. And even in terms of the democracy, the reaction to things like the January 6th hearings suggests that perhaps, you know, fear of Donald Trump taking over the country again might be overstated and actually just an example of um, Americans suffering from PTSD. Uh, you've given a lot of thought to Trump. You even wrote a book, The Toddler in <laughs> Chief. I know Moises Naim thinks he's going to get reelected in 2024. Do you think he, so? You don't think he will? Don't no, think? I don't actually. No. Um, I'm not saying it can't happen. I don't want to be, you know, sound uh, overly uh, uh, optimistic here, but I, I think it's a two step question. First, Will Trump actually get the Republican nomination? And I frankly have my doubts about that. Um, we've been seeing throughout this entire year um, that Trump's endorsement in contested primaries sometimes does the trick, but many times does not. Um, and so that actually suggests a weakening of his hold over uh, the GOP. Um, and so it would not surprise me if he does not necessarily get the nomination. And I think also people... I think underestimate the degree to which the January 6th hearings might really, you know, be dragging him down, um, particularly uh, after uh, last week or the week before is the the Hutchinson testimony, um, I think really actually did have an impact on on conservative elites as well, led to the, you know, National Review and the Washington Examiner all basically saying that that this was a real problem. And furthermore, I think put him genuinely uh, vulnerable to criminal prosecution. Um, and so I think in those circumstances, it would not shock me if a Ron DeSantis beat him in a, in a GOP primary or someone else beat him in a GOP primary. But even if he were to win the primary, um, I'm not sure he would win the general election. It is There is no denying the Republicans will likely have a, a decent midterms. Um, but it should be noted that they probably won't have as good a midterms as they should, because among other things, Trump wound up supporting some candidates who are unlikely to win in the general election. Um, take Herschel Walker, who's running for the Senate in Georgia, who just seems like a disaster of a candidate. Um, and that is a winnable race that I think uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock will wind up winning re-election for. Um, and so this is certainly one example of this. But more importantly, I think even if the Republicans <laughs> do have a decent midterm, it then leads to a situation where do you really want Trump to win in 2024? And no, I think Biden beat him once. I think he can beat him again. And even if Biden doesn't run, I think another Democrat can beat him. I think the idea of, of Trump is somehow this unstoppable political juggernaut, um, I think, frankly, is a misread of what happened in 2016. Um, it's always worth remembering he, he won with uh, you know, with my by minus three million votes in terms of the popular vote, um, he barely squeaked by me uh, in sort of the swing states as well. 
And after he won, um, it was bad news for the Republican Party. The, the, you know, when he was elected in 2016, the, the GOP controlled the House, the Senate and the presidency. And four years later, they can wound up controlling none of them. Um, this is not a sterling record. Well, that's one reason to be cheerful, Dan. But uh, certainly I don't suppose there are many people watching the show are big fans of Trump. You're mm -hmm. primarily a professor of international politics. You had an interesting piece uh, published recently called The Death of the Democratic Advantage, mm -hmm. which might be interpreted pessimistically in terms of America's <laughs> role in the world. You began this conversation talking about the disastrous wars overseas, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, what, what is this death of the democratic advantage? And is it something that we should, again, be, we as Americans should be miserable about? I don't think miserable is the word. I do think concerned is the word. So that that's definitely a more pessimistic article. So the democratic advantage is an argument that has been put forward by a number of different international relations scholars, you know, for the past 25, actually uh, 40 years, basically arguing that democracies along uh, multiple dimensions um, were perceived as outperforming autocracies um, in the rigors of, of uh, global competition, whether it's um, democracies are more likely to cooperate with each other. They're much less likely to go to war with each other. They're more likely to win the wars that they they fight. Um, they generally are able to attract credit and attract foreign direct investment um, more easily. They are usually able to borrow at lower interest rates um, than autocratic governments, a, a whole host of these things. And you know, scholars noticed the, empirically that this was the case and then sort of ascribe sort of theories or explanations for why was it the democracies had this advantage. And, you know, there's there's a number of them that have been put forward. But the two that I, I address in that article are first that democracies are able to credibly commit, which means that if a democracy says they're going to do something or, you know, joins an alliance or, you know, signs an international treaty and then ratifies it, it's really hard to reverse course. Um, and second, that democracies were perceived as being better at supplying public goods. Um, that democracies, in order to reward um, the electorate, had a greater incentive to invest in broad-based public goods, like, let's say, healthcare or education, as opposed to autocratic states that might have had an incentive to reward their particular um, base of, of support. But since that base is much narrower, they didn't have to be rewarded through public goods, but rather through private goods, things like gated communities or special access to, to consumer goods or what have you. Um, this seemed to hold up reasonably well up until about the turn of the century. And then obviously democracies have had a rough generation or so. And so I, the paper sort of revisits these um, theoretical arguments and suggests that in point of fact, the growth of populism as a, a political movement in democracies has eroded some of these elements of the democratic advantage. Um, populists are particularly uh, hostile to the idea of credible commitment. Um, because credible commitments, by definition, hamstring or constrain leaders um, in the future from reversing what leaders in the present do. And populists don't like that. Populists are hostile to the idea of any kind of executive constraint, because populism believes that any sort of elected leader should be able to enact the general will of the people. Um, and so they view uh, legal constraints as really the tools of elites um, to prevent uh, leaders from doing what they want. Dan, um, we... Um... We interviewed Chris Miller, your colleague at Tufts, an expert on mm -hmm. Russia, about the situation in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
he believes that there is a possibility that the Russians are winning the war, or certainly if not losing it. How important is the outcome of the Ukrainian war in terms of this whole issue of the death of the democratic advantage and optimism in America itself? Is it a sideshow or do you think it could be a a core thing which will... um, which will encourage Americans to believe in themselves and their system? It could be a core thing. Um, you know, for one thing, the Ukrainians have been very clear that they want to be part of the West. They want to be, you know, part of NATO. They want to be part of the European Union. They they identify with the United States and with all of the tropes of Western democracy that Americans have been somewhat disillusioned about. And if Ukraine were actually able to, you know, fight the Russians to a draw and or essentially reverse um, territorial gains to reestablish borders as they existed on February 24th. Um, That would be a pretty impressive victory by the Ukrainians. It would also have come in no small part due to aid from the United States and the European Union. And so this would certainly count as a major foreign policy win for the United States and a reminder of everyone to everyone of actual U.S. power in the world. both of these things have been, you know, there aren't, you can't point to a lot of U.S. foreign policy victories over the last 20 years. And there's a widespread perception that American power is on the decline. So if you actually have a conflict where U.S. support causes a vital democratic bulwark to actually win against an autocratic ally, yeah, suddenly you get to rewrite a lot of narratives. You teach at Tufts, so you teach a lot of kids. You've got kids of your own. Interesting piece in the journal today about millennials used to be optimistic about their financial future now not so much you hear a lot of anecdotal stuff about millennials not wanting kids millennials not wanting to work millennials not believing in the future is there a generational quality to this crisis of optimism in your view i do think there are there's undeniable cohort effects um you know so i'm gen x and one of the advantages my generation had is that even though we grew up at least in part during some of the tensest times during the cold war we then had a period where the Cold War ended and, and had a happy ending, relatively speaking, for Americans. And you really did see a world in which democracy seemed to be expanding, globalization seemed to be uh, expanding, the internet brought us all closer. It was a very positive narrative. Um, in contrast, millennials came of age during 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis and Donald Trump getting elected president. Um, you can and And by the way, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So you can understand why they might... And the collapse of the financial, the global financial system in 2008. Right, the 2008 financial crisis, exactly. So, you know, you, you can't blame them for thinking, well, maybe the world is not going to end quite as well or is not going quite as well as all of my elders uh, seem to claim it. Um, so I, the pessimism on their side is potentially understandable. Well, let's end, Dan, with your own concern about zombies your new book or it's a revised edition it just came out last year theories of international politics and zombies um the revised edition uh, comes i think with uh, uh, a new uh, a, a new um subtitle about uh, the apocalypse edition there apocalypse we go apocalypse yes. edition which obviously yes. there's an element of humor here but mm-hmm. how have you integrated zombies Apocalypse edition into uh, theories of international politics, and is that another reason to hide under the bed? Actually, the the book is 
pretty optimistic because one of the arguments I make in it is that, I mean, obviously it's it's designed to be a textbook. It's designed to um, use zombies to sort of illuminate uh, to students how different theories of international politics predict uh, the world works. But one of the points I make is that, you know, by investigating the zombie canon, um, I argue that that way too much of the zombie canon, whether you're looking at, you know, Romero's films or Resident Evil or what have you, are far too pessimistic about humanity. That in most of these narratives, um, you know, zombies wind up adapting and show implacable will and wind up usually overrunning uh, civilization as we know it. And that in point of fact, um, most of these narratives tend to underestimate human ingenuity and the human ability um, to adapt to new shocks. You know, we're a pretty awesome species, actually. And any species that can invent duct tape, I would never count out on. Um, and so one of the points I, I was arguing about uh, the species, but not all, not all humans are Americans. Absolutely true. But, uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that, not, and I'm joking here, just as not yeah. all human, uh, not, not all Americans are human. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but, um, I'm teasing being, you. Yeah. I mean, Dan, Dan, let's finish. Um, well, we could have been having this conversation in the seventies and eighties. I remember when I came to America's grad school, grad school, eighties these conversations all the time america seemed to save itself with the internet is there something on the horizon that might be the equivalent to the internet or some other technology or business or phenomenon that will make us suddenly realize the value of america i take your point about our ingenuity i would say there's two things that can do this uh the first would be green tech um so climate change is another we haven't mentioned it but it's an it's another reason why millennials tend to be pessimistic about the mm. future radical innovations in um eco-friendly uh energy would certainly be one way in which you might be convinced that um america still has something to offer the world the other is uh pharmaceutical is is uh, medical it's it's you know, if you see the development of, of more vaccines that could enable us to guard against pandemics and or respond to incipient pandemics more quickly than we dealt with COVID-19, that would also potentially convince, let's say, millennials and, and Generation Z that maybe uh, human ingenuity should not be uh, discounted. Well, you've cheered us up a little bit, Dan, on a, on a, on a miserable Thursday afternoon. Um, you're, of course, you've written many books, including Toddler in Chief, the book about uh, international politics and zombies, which now comes out in an apocalypse edition, and then your, of course, your ideas industry. What else should people be reading, perhaps to cheer themselves up in uh, in July 2022? What other books have you read that have made you smile or feel a little bit more positive about the world? Um, or miserable, for that matter. I don't mind. No, no, no. Weirdly, what I would recommend is uh, a book of fiction, actually. Um, it was just made into a miniseries by HBO, but Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, um, which is, I describe it, it might be the most hopeful post-apocalyptic uh, book I've ever read. Um, but it's it's an extremely uh, well-done uh, piece of fiction. Um, and then another book that I actually just finished, which I quite enjoyed, it's, a much, it's more pessimistic, um, but on the other hand, anyone who can produce this book is is uh, is worth reading. Uh, is Fiona Hill's um, Yeah, uh, there's nothing for you here, which is uh, very uh, pessimistic. Fiona was actually on the show. Ah, uh, yeah. But I put it this way: one of the things she did mention in the book, which I think was correct, was during the first impeachment hearings, the fact that you saw 
you know, the best of America's foreign service officers on display and the erudition they demonstrated in terms of their testimony, you know, offers an occasional reminder to Americans that, you know, their image of a feckless state or a corrupt state is very often badly misplaced, that it turns out there are a lot of good people doing a lot of good things working for the federal government. Yeah, we might add Maria Yovanovitch, who was also yes. on the show, another example. Absolutely.